How you guys doing? You guys feeling good? Good. A couple of you guys are. That's great. So, um, my name's Ryan. I'm with the Bridge Street House of Prayer. Um, been part of this church and in partnership with this church now for many years. Love this church. Uh, we've been really honored to be a part of this, and now we recently did a church plant over in our neighborhood, over on the west side, with some friends of ours at the Boiler Room, and so now we're kind of in partnership with this church, and just love the Crossroads family. I've been just super honored to be a part of what God's doing here. I love the way this church, the leadership of this church is following God, that they're, they're hearing God's plans and chasing after God's plans, submitting their own wills to God's and taking up theirs. And I love the way you guys are responding and following and being faithful. I just love that. I love what God's doing at this church. And so super honored to be a part of it. Um, my wife tells me not to preach with gum in my mouth. So I'm going to put my gum here. <laughs> Greg, if you find it later, I'm sorry. I'll <clears throat> try to remember it. Turn with me to Acts 4. You guys... Uh, you guys kind of in the groove of what we're doing here, flip-flopping week to week. Rod's preaching through Romans right now. Last week he was here with, here with you guys preaching Romans 7. He'll be here next week in Romans 8. Um, and then the teaching team, we're going through Acts. We're in Acts 4, second half of Acts 4 at this pace. I think we should be done with Acts maybe like 2016, somewhere around there. <laughs> so... <coughs> um, so yeah, we're in Acts. We're going to be looking at the second half of Acts. It was, uh, can I just ask, can I get a couple of you guys to commit to just for these next 40, 50 minutes to be praying for me? Can I get a couple of you guys to just thank you? Um, and here's the prayer that I want, is that Jesus would be magnified, that his name would be glorified, that he would be honored and pleased. So just make that your one prayer for these next 40, 50 minutes, that Jesus would be magnified above all. That's my greatest desire. That's my greatest heart, is that Jesus, you would be magnified. So Jesus, I pray right now, uh, Father, that you would fill my mouth with your words, that you'd open up the hearts of your people to receive what it is that you have to hear, so that Jesus, above all else, we would have a greater revelation of who you are. Pray for that spirit of wisdom and revelation that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your son, Jesus. Father, that this revelation of who you are would change us from the inside out, and that we could live according to that revelation. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I uh, had the, the uh, honor to be down at Western University, at their InterVarsity ministry. Woo! Yeah. Is anybody here from the Western University, or are you guys just cheering for Western University? Apparently, we have some big Western University fans. That's great. So I had the opportunity to be down with, their, with those guys for a couple of weeks. Super great crowd of young people, passionate, love Jesus. And um, the second week I was down there, I had this opportunity. I was, I was preaching, and there's this, right in the front row, there's this um, young man from Kenya, just full of passion, loves Jesus, and and as I'm preaching, this guy, like halfway through, the, through, through my message, he just like lifts his hand. He just like starts doing that. It's like, it's kind of weird. As I'm preaching, like every couple of minutes, he just lift his arm and just shake it a little bit. I think, man, this, this dude's really being touched right now. You know, and, 
when you're preaching, you, you kind of hone in on a couple of people. There's a, you kind of read the crowd and you hone in on a couple of people as indicators, and, which is a bit difficult in, when you're preaching to a largely white evangelical crowd. Because <laughs> honestly, here's the response that you get. I mean, it's, it's cool. I'm, 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 part, I'm part of the white evangelical crowd. I know how it goes. But I, have you guys ever seen this T-shirt, the, the many faces of Chuck Norris? Or the many expressions of Chuck Norris? And it's like Chuck Norris angry. Chuck Norris happy. Chuck Norris upset. And it's all the same face. It's like all the same stoic face. I want to make a T-shirt, the many faces of the evangelical church. You know, all just the same expressionless face. <clears throat> it's cool. I'm, I, I love you guys. I'm part of it. I do the same thing when I'm listening to a preacher. I just kind of sit there and watch. But anyway, this, this, there's, this, there's this, young, this young man. He just like, keep, keeps lifting his arm like this. And I'm like, man, this guy's being touched. This is awesome. I must be, like, I must be bringing a good word today. So he'd lift his arm and shake, and I'd get more fired up. And he'd lift his arm and shake, and I'd get more fired up. And afterward, I'm talking to this guy, and we're just having a normal conversation. I'm um, just getting to know him a little bit. And while we're talking, he like starts shaking his arm. I'm like, whoa, must like the anointing must be resting, you know? And then I realized it. He actually just had this really big sweatshirt on and his, his sleeve kept falling down. <laughs> and, and when his sleeve would fall down, he'd like try to get it back up. <laughs> yes, I love that. Just when you think you're sweet, God has this way of just like knocking you down a little bit and thinking, letting you know you're not that sweet. You're not that sweet. It's a true story. My wife was there. She can testify to it. It's funny. Um, Acts 4. Second half of Acts 4. Let's go to a little bit of review. If you guys are anything like me, two weeks ago, you heard the first part of Acts 2. Two weeks ago was a long time ago. Lots of stuff has happened in two weeks. So let's do a little bit of a review, set the stage to understand what we're diving into in the second half of Acts 4 here. Did I just say Acts 2? Acts 4. Um, so let me just set the stage a little bit here. Give a little bit of review. Acts, as you guys have all heard, Acts is kind of like Luke part 2. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. Luke is all about what Jesus did here on earth during his ministry here on earth Acts is the follow-up to that of what Jesus did through his Holy Spirit, through his church here on earth. So, so Luke is all about what Jesus did on earth. Acts is all about what the church did through the power of the Holy Spirit here on earth. And so we find ourselves in Acts 1. Jesus with his disciples gives them some final instruction. And then he gives this promise and this command. And this is the key verse that you will see running through the whole of Acts. You'll see it running through the whole of the book of Acts and really through the whole of the New Testament leading up to Revelation. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's kind of the key verse that will run through the whole of Acts. We see in Acts 2, the very beginning of the fulfillment of this promise. Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost, the disciples are going up into the temple. I, I put them at the temple. Some people put them at the upper room. Makes more sense to me in context that they're at the temple. 
either way, I don't think it matters much. I think what's more important is that the Holy Spirit comes down. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They start speaking in tongues. Huge crowd gathers around. And then Peter stands up and proclaims the message of Jesus. 3,000 are added to their name that day, or added to their number that day. Good day for the church. Acts 2 is a good day for the church. Acts 3, and then end of Acts 2, we see uh, it gives a kind of a description of the fellowship and the unity of the early church after the day of Pentecost. Now, Acts 3, Peter and John are going back up to the temple to see a blind man. Again, this is right after the Pentecost. They see this blind man. They heal, or a lame man, I'm sorry. They heal this lame man. The lame man comes with them into the temple. He's leaping and shouting for joy because he's been lame his whole life. The people recognize this lame man. And a huge crowd gathers around again. Peter takes this opportunity to again preach the gospel. So we see Peter preaching the gospel over and over. And then we see again, 2,000 more are added to their number that day. Another good day for the church. So the number of the church grows to 5,000 soon after Pentecost. And then we see that Peter and John were thrown in, in prison. Dan Mike preached on this two weeks ago. How many of you guys were here for Dan Mike? How many of you guys love Dan Mike? I love that dude. Um, he's preaching at our church right now down on the west side. Um, so, so Peter and John are thrown in prison. And then the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the ruling class, they question them. They accuse them, but they can't really find anything to do with these guys because they got this great crowd following them. There's this guy that's been healed, so they can't deny the power. So they decide there's not much we can do about it. So they threaten them. They say, do not talk in the name of this man, Jesus, anymore. And Peter and John's response is, you decide for yourself whether it's right for us to obey you or God. But as for us, we cannot but help but talk about what we've seen and heard. So that's where we are left two weeks ago. And that's where we pick up today Acts 4, verse 23. Now understand this. Realize there's this like high expectation going on right now. There's like 5,000 new believers. It says that 5,000 men, so you could probably double that maybe. Regardless, 5,000 new believers, maybe 10,000 new believers, a whole host of new believers. But also there's this heavy threat of persecution. You need to to understand that. Peter and John were just put in jail. They're just released. They saw that they crucified Jesus. That didn't work too well for them. But there's this heavy threat of persecution. So the church is filled with anticipation, but heavy persecution happening right now. And here's where we pick up in Acts 4, 23. I'm going to read from the ESV. It's the Bible that I read read from. Your NIV will be very similar you'll be able to follow along along pretty easily. Acts 4, 23, I'm going to read all the way through the end of Acts 4. When they were released, that's Peter and John being released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats 
and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. Verse 32, now a full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And great power, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A couple of observations. I want to unpack this text together because I think there's a, there's a, there's a deep thread that's running through the story, these two sections And it's a thread that ties this to the rest of the book of Acts. And it's the same thread that runs through the whole New Testament, the whole Bible. And it's that same thread that ties us with the story. And here's what I want us to do is I want to see ourselves in the story. I want to see ourselves rather than looking down upon this as something that just happened 2,000 years ago, looking at this as our story. This is our story. This is our heritage. A couple of observations. Number one, what we're going to look at is we've got two parts going on here. There's kind of two sections that, you, that we just read. Number one is the believer's prayer in response to Peter and John being thrown in prison and then released and the threat of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then number two, the second section is how they lived. It's how they lived as a result of what's happening in their midst. Second observation is this is happening Keep in mind, right after the day of Pentecost. Now, something struck me in my studies of the past couple of weeks. And I I don't know what to do with this. So I'm just, I'm not going to camp on it. But I just wonder, could it be that Acts 3, the healing of the lame man in the temple, is the very same day as the day of Pentecost? It says that that was at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. It says that... The, day, the time of Pentecost and then the Holy Spirit first comes down is 9 a.m. or the third hour. I wonder, is this the very same day that this is all happening? I don't know. Your NIV Bibles will say one day, but most translations will just say, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at 3 p.m. So I just, I just wonder, is this the very same day as Pentecost? I don't know. I can't back that up. I don't think it's a big, big deal. I just... I just like to think about that and wonder, is this all happening on the same day? Regardless, it's very soon after the day of Pentecost. They're still in Jerusalem. They're at the temple. This would have been right after Pentecost. So this is at the very beginning of the birth of the church. It's the very beginning of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church and the church being born. Uh, number three, <clears throat> third observation I want to make. Acts 3 and 4, if you read kind of the big picture of what's going on, it's essentially a repeat of Acts 2. Think about that. The apostles go up to the temple in Acts 2. 
This great miracle happens. A great crowd gathers around. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. Tons of people are saved. And then it describes the unity and fellowship of the believers. Now look at Acts 3 and 4. It's the same story. They go up to the temple. They, this miracle happens. A great crowd gathers around. Peter preaches the gospel. And thousands of people are saved. And then it describes the fellowship and the unity of the believers. So it's the same story. So I think, I feel like Jesus is trying to tell us something here. There's something going on here that we need to understand so that we can look at how does this apply to us today. So let's dig into our text. Let's unpack this together and see what we can uncover. Let me start in today's text, verse 24. I want to read this again and look at kind of what's the deeper thread? What's the deeper stream that God's trying to communicate here? Verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted up their voice to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who, th- who through the mouth of your father David, or, or our father David, your servant by the Holy Spirit, said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, in this prayer, the the early church, the disciples, are referencing an Old Testament scripture. Does anybody know what they're referencing here in this? Psalm 2. They're referencing Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? That is a direct quote from Psalm 2. Now, here's what we need to understand about the correlation between the New Testament and the Old Testament. When you read references to the Old Testament in the New Testament, what the early readers would have done is they wouldn't have just read those words, but they would have associated the whole text surrounding that. So when they read this or they hear this, they're not just hearing this word, these words, but they're hearing the whole of Psalm 2, the whole message of Psalm 2. So to understand a little bit better what's happening here, let's turn to Psalm 2 and look at the whole of Psalm 2 to understand how this is impacting the early church. Psalm 2, let me read this. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Does that sound familiar? That's what the early church is quoting. Continue on verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. Now listen to this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10, Now therefore you wise, therefore you kings, be wise Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So this is what they're thinking about when they're praying this. See, they're 
So they're living in the first part of this, this psalm. They're living in the days when the Gentiles and the nations are raging. Remember, they're under the threat of heavy persecution. Their two main guys have just been thrown in prison. The, 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 the ruling class of that day, they're, they're, they're like on edge, high tension right now. The Roman class, they're getting fed up with the Jews right now. So there's this heavy threat of persecution. They're living in these days when the nations are raging against them. And yet, they understand this promise in Psalm 2. And the promise is this, that there's a greater reality. That there's a greater reality than what's happening around us. There's a greater reality than this threat that we're living under. There's a greater reality, or a greater reality than the nations raging. And that greater reality is that there's a king in heaven on the throne. And he laughs at his enemies. And more than that, he's coming back to reign and rule here on earth. See, they understood this and they understood because remember Jesus had spent 40 days with them before he ascended telling them about the kingdom, reminding them of everything that he said. And then he gave them the promise that I'll send my Holy Spirit to be with you to bring to remembrance all things that I've taught you. And so they understood that there's a greater reality. They understood that they're, even though they're under persecution, there's a king on the throne who's looking down who has everything under control, and who is soon coming back. And here's what they also understood, is that that king is Jesus. That Jesus is on his throne, that he's looking down, that he isn't a distant God, but he's looking down at everything that's happening, and that he's getting ready to come back to reign and rule here on earth. See, they lived with, with, with what I call an eternal perspective. They lived with an eternal perspective, that this life is but a moment. That the things of, the, of this world are but a shadow. They're but a fleeting memory. And then Jesus is coming back. See, they lived with this reality. And for them, it wasn't just a theological talking point. And it wasn't what's so, uh, so common today, this divisive issue. But rather, it was their hope. It was the thing that, that drove them. It was the consuming passion of their life that Jesus, although things right now are difficult, Jesus is coming back and that he's commanded us to be his witnesses here on earth. See, they lived with this reality and this is a reality that Paul understood. Think about the writings of Paul, 1 Corinthians 4. He says that these light momentary afflictions of this world are not worth comparing or he says, no, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, these light momentary afflictions are creating in me the eternal weight of glory. See, Paul understood that this life is but a moment. As difficult as this life is, it's but a moment. And then there's eternal glory. That Jesus is coming back to reign and rule here on earth. And then there's eternal glory. And that's not worth comparing to the temporary afflictions of this world. Or Romans 8 he says these, these momentary afflictions, they're not worth comparing to the eternal glory of Jesus. See, Peter understood this. In 1 Peter 1, 13, I think it is, he even says this. He says, let your hope rest fully. Let your hope rest fully in the revelation to come. Let your, let your hope rest fully 
and the revelation of Jesus. See, Peter understood this. Paul understood this. The early church understood this, that this life is but a moment. And then we're done. And then Jesus comes back and he reigns and rules here on earth. And here's the thing is we have this same promise. We have this same promise today. Look with me at Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Understand this, the early church that we read about in Acts 4, they didn't have the book of Revelation. Their scriptures were the, was the Old Testament. They had Psalm 2, but they didn't have the book of Revelation yet. And yet, listen to what is written in the book of Revelation 19. Let me just say this about the book of Revelation. Fall in love with the book of Revelation. Get to know Jesus in the pages of Revelation. Because here's the thing. The very first phrase in the book of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get to know Jesus in the book of Revelation and fall in love with this man of Jesus revealed in this book. Listen to this revelation of Jesus. Revelation nineteen eleven. Then I saw heaven opened and, and behold a white horse. Then one seated on it called faithful and true. And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. What does that sound like? Sounds like Psalm 2. Jesus coming back to reign and rule with a rod of iron. See, the early church, Paul, Peter, and all throughout history, you find this written all throughout the New Testament is the hope of glory when Jesus returns. And that this life is but a moment I've been gripped with this reality, to my, this reality in my life. Some years ago, the Lord gripped me with this reality. He said, Ryan, I'm coming back and you need to be ready for it. And the church needs to be ready for it. And there's a lot of work to be done here on earth before I come back. And the glory that's revealed with that, that's not a heavy-handed command, but that's the glory to be revealed at the returning of Jesus. And I was telling uh, this man that I respect and love about this, this reality that I've been gripped with. And his response was this. He said, he said Ryan, that's great, but, but how, does, how does that affect me? How does that affect today? How does that affect the way I live? I think, oh my goodness, this should impact every component of our life. This should impact every facet of our life. This should impact the way we live on Tuesday morning. This reality that we're created for something greater that we're created for eternal glory and that this life is but a moment should impact the way we live on Tuesday morning. And I think it impacted the early church. Let's turn back to Acts 4. See, I think this reality impacted the way they live because look at how they pray. Again, remember, they're under heavy persecution right now. Their two leaders have just been arrested for speaking the name of Jesus and the ruling class has promised that if anybody else does it, they're also going to be arrested. So if anybody speaks about Jesus, they're going to be arrested. 
And here's the believer's prayer. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That was their one prayer, is God, give us boldness to speak your name. God, give us boldness to proclaim your name. I wonder if I would have been in that place that day, what would my prayer have been? If I would have been under this threat, if my two friends had been just thrown in jail, would I have been saying, God, save us, God, protect us, God, release us? I've got this friend, Dan Bauman. He's a missionary with YWAM. Several years ago, he was thrown in jail in, in Iran. He was thrown in prison in Iran. He was in prison in Iran for nine weeks, two death sentences on his head. Wrote a book about it. It's called Imprisoned in Iran. It's a great book. I thought, Dan, you could come up with a better title. Come on. <laughs> Imprisoned in Iran. It's easy to remember. It's a great book. Read it. Um, but he's imprisoned in Iran. Nobody knows what's happening with this man. Iran is just, it's, 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 Complete lockdown. And so he's imprisoned in Iran. Nobody knows what's happening with him. He was based in, out of Colorado at this point. And so as soon as word gets out that Dan's been thrown in prison, the whole YWAM family in Colorado gathers together and starts praying. They all meet at the base in Colorado and they all start praying. The whole group of people gather around and they're praying. They're praying for Dan's release. And they're praying for Dan's protection. And they're praying for Dan's freedom. And they're they're, they're on their faces and they're weeping and they're crying and they're crying out to God. And then Dan's mom, this, this old intercessor woman, full of fire, full of passion, she speaks up in the middle of the prayer meeting and she says, God, I pray that you don't release my son until all of your purposes have been accomplished in his life. Whoa. It's funny to hear Dan tell this story because he says, I'm glad other people were praying. (laughs) (laughs) But see, Dan's mom had this understanding that her son was created for something greater. And that even if he died in prison, he was created for glory. That he was created for the testimony and the glory of Jesus. She understood it. The early church understood it. Paul understood it. Do we understand that today? That we're created for something more. We're created for more than the temporary fleeting pleasures of this world. We're created for more than what this world has to offer. And even when life gets difficult, the glory to be revealed is so much greater. The early church understood this. And look at how they lived Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. Now we can look at the logistics of how they live and say, does that apply to us today? But here's the thing. When I read about this, I read about a group of people that lived with an eternal perspective. That the way they lived, one thing I'm certain of, is that the way they lived was simply the result of the revelation of Jesus in their life. The way they lived was simply the result of the working of God in their life. They weren't living this way in order to gain some approval by God. They weren't living this way to gain the power. 
the power was simply released through them because of what Jesus was doing. And so they lived out of a result, out of a response to the reality of Jesus. Does that make sense? They weren't living a certain way to gain a certain result. They were simply living out of response to the revelation of Jesus. I have the, the, the privilege, the honor to live in communities, really intentional community with several people. We live on the west side among the poor, and we live somewhat similar to this. It's not exactly similar to this. And people look at me and say, oh, that's so great how you guys live. Listen, it is beautiful. I love it. It's powerful. But here's why we live the way we do. I live with a bunch of young people that have been gripped with this reality that they're created for something more. That have said no, they've counted the cost of following Jesus. They've said this world has nothing for me. And so they've counted the cost and paid the price and said we've been created for glory. And we've been created to be witnesses for Jesus here on earth. See, that's what I read about in the early church here. And they understood that they need to do this thing together. We need to do this thing together. You need people around you. You need fellow, the fellowship of believers around you. You weren't created to do this thing alone. You need people around you. You don't have to do it like they did it. You don't have to do it like we did it or we do it. But you, you got to do it with people. And you got to live with this reality that Jesus is coming back. That you're going to live face to face with Jesus very soon. And I wonder why in the church today are so many people not living this way? Why are we living so flippantly in the church today? Why are people so afraid to tell people about Jesus? Why are we so cautious to share the reality of Jesus with people around us? Why are we not running out into the streets and telling everybody we know about the reality of Jesus? We've got the same Holy Spirit, guys. This is our story. The same great grace that was upon them is upon us. And the same Holy Spirit that was in the church is in us. The same, the fullness of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Acts dwells here today. Why are we not running out into the streets and telling everybody we know? I'm glad you asked because I just happen to have eight reasons why we're not doing that. I'm glad. Thank you for leading me right into my sermon here. I want to offer up eight reasons as I was preparing. God just put this on my heart. Eight reasons why today we're not proclaiming the gospel because this is a common theme that you see running through here. They were giving themselves to the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They spoke the word of God with all boldness. Their prayer was that they would be able to speak the word with boldness. We see Peter standing up among the crowd and speaking about Jesus. Why are we not speaking about Jesus today? Number one, apathy. Apathy is rampant in the church today. The reality is that many of us just don't care. We just don't care. We've relegated Christianity to sitting in these church chairs on Sunday mornings. And as long as we're here, we've paid our due. 
And even in this room, there's some of you that the only reason you're here is because you'd feel guilty if you weren't. And I want to tell you this morning, you're created for something more than that. You're created for a greater purpose. That you've been created for such a time as this. And you've been created for the glory of Jesus. And he wants to use you to magnify himself here. See, being a Christian isn't about this hour or two on Sunday morning, but it's about what we do when we walk out that door. Guys, we're not changing the world in here. Do you guys understand that? We're not changing the world in here. We change the world out there. We change the world when we walk out that door. But many of us, we don't really want our lives to count. We just want to live however we feel like it. We want to live whatever this world has to offer, and we don't understand the reality, the magnificence, the glory of Jesus, and that there's a world out there that needs to hear about it. And my prayer, if that's you this morning, I pray not that you would feel guilty and condemned, but that you would have the revelation of Jesus in your life that would be so much greater than what this world has to offer because this world is but a moment and then there's glory. Number two, fear. Many of us are just simply afraid. And this is, this is, man, I will put myself right in this camp. Many of us are just simply afraid to testify, to witness, to live out the gospel. Because what if we look like a fool? Let me let, let you in on a little secret. You will look like a fool. You absolutely will look like a fool. So get over it. Welcome to the club. I have stumbled through so many gospel presentations and just been like, oh my goodness, that person, that, that was like the worst, that had nothing to do with Jesus. That was like the worst thing ever, you know? And it, and it creates this fear in me. Oh, what if I look like a fool? What if I look like an idiot? It doesn't matter because it's not about you. It's not about what you look like. It's about what Jesus looks like. It's about what are we going to make Jesus look like? And he's not afraid of you messing up. Jesus is not afraid of your failures. You need to understand this because we live in a culture where you're told you need to excel and you need to do everything right. Jesus is not afraid of your failures. Do you know that about him? Do you know the goodness of God that he's not afraid of your failures? He's not looking for perfection. He just is looking for willingness for those that will just open their mouth and let him fill it. And if you look like a fool, then so be it. So be it. But just open your mouth and preach the word. 2 Timothy 1.7 says that we have not been given a spirit of fear. But we've been given a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. Guys, claim that promise. That is a promise from God. When you feel that fear rising up from you, that is not of God. You have not been given a spirit of fear. But you've been given a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. Number three, I hear this one often. I just don't have a good story to tell. Oh my goodness, this is your story. This is your story. If you're a follower of Jesus, you all have a story. No matter what your story here on earth looks like, whether you're one of those that spent years in the pit dealing drugs and now you're on fire for Jesus, or if you're more like me, who you've just, you've lived a pretty good life and your whole life has just been one step after another. Guys, I don't have a mountaintop experience. 
I don't have a mountaintop story. My brother has got this magnificent story of what Jesus did in his life. Drug, dealing drugs in Chicago for years. God broke into his life, radically changed his life. He's got a great story. And we like these great stories in the church today. We like to hear these great, magnificent stories. But here's the deal. 99% of us don't have those stories. Anybody in there with me? Anybody not have one of these great, magnificent stories? This is your story. And the world needs to hear it. The world needs to hear the testimony of Jesus Christ. And God has got you right where he needs you. He's put you. He's created you for such a time as this. And there's people in your life that need to hear your story. They need to hear the testimony of Jesus in your life. Because there's people in your life that are right where you are and they need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear it. They need to hear about this man, Jesus. Will you tell them? Will you tell them about Jesus? Number four, I'm just, I'm too young. I'm too young. I'm not, I'm not old enough. Jeremiah 1, you don't have to turn there, but let me read this. Jeremiah 1. There's a lot of young people in this church. I believe God is moving in this young generation right now. In our ministry, we are giving so much energy into discipling this next generation because I believe that God is moving in this generation right now. This young generation, high school, middle school, college. I believe God is moving in this generation and that he is bringing about revival in this city and all over the nation through this young generation. Jeremiah 1. Then the Lord said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For for uh, For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth and he said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Don't wait till you're out of high school. Don't wait till you're out of middle school. Don't wait till you're out of college. The time is now. Open your mouth. Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy. He said, Timothy, don't let anybody look down upon you because of your youth but speak the word with boldness. Um, I lost my place. Hold on. Number five, I'm not a gifted, or I'm not a trained speaker. Listen, when I'm talking about proclaiming the message of Jesus, I'm not talking about being up on a stage here. I'm talking about to your classmates. I'm talking about your family, your friends, whatever opportunity God gives you. But we, we have this idea today in the church that we have to be trained And we have to go to seminary or we have to go to missionary school before we can go out and proclaim the gospel. You know what my training was to be up here this morning? It was eight and a half years in the engineering field. That's all the training I have. I was an engineer for eight and a half years. I've got no formal theological training. I've got no training as a preacher. Some of you guys are saying, we can tell, I know. Listen, you don't need to be well-trained. You don't need to be the most well-educated. You don't need to be the most eloquent speaker. It says in Acts 3.14 that the, 
the Sadducees saw that Peter and John were uneducated common men. And yet they saw that they were with Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're the most well-spoken. It doesn't matter if you're the most well-trained. Just get a prayer life. Get a disciplined life in the word. Get a disciplined prayer life. Get alone with Jesus so that the world can see that you've been with Jesus. And then tell them about his resurrection. Tell them about the glory of this man, Jesus. Number six, I'm not a gifted speaker. You know who else used this excuse? Moses. Read Exodus 4. Moses used this exact same excuse over and over and over again. God, I'm just not an eloquent speaker. God, choose somebody else. God, I stutter. Scholars say that Moses had a stuttering problem. And yet God chose to use him because God uses the weak things to shame the, the, the strong. He uses the foolish things to shame the wise. Because God uses us in our weakness. Because in our weakness, he, his strength is made perfect. You don't have to be the most gifted speaker. You just need to be willing to open your mouth and let Jesus fill it. Because here's the thing, it's not about you. It's not about you and what you look like. It's about giving testimony to Jesus because the world needs to hear about Jesus. Number seven, here's one I hear often. I just want to live the gospel. I don't want to have to preach the gospel. I just want to live the gospel. The gospel is offensive and I don't want to offend people. I just want them to see it by the way I live. Listen, the gospel is offensive. Jesus bloodied on a cross is offensive. It's absolutely offensive. And I hear this often. I hear this phrase or this saying. Preach the gospel often and when necessary, use words. Now I understand the heart behind that we, that we need to live the gospel because this is something that's meant to be lived out. It's something that's supposed to impact us and change us and something that we're supposed to be, to be lived out. But I love what Matt Westerholm says. He says, saying preach the gospel and when necessary, use words is like saying feed the hungry and when necessary, use food. My one problem with that understanding is the Bible. Because the Bible says, preach the word. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. Timothy, preach the word, the disciples' prayer. God, grant us boldness to preach the word. And that's still our responsibility today. Preach the word. Preach the word. Because there's a, there is a world out there that's under bondage right now. They're under bondage to this world. They're under bondage to the enemy. And it's the truth that will set them free. And how will they know unless somebody tells them? Preach the word. And lastly, I hear this, and this is an excuse that I've used often in my life. Is I've just failed so many times. There's so many times that I've just missed opportunities. Friends, let me tell you, there's so many opportunities that I've missed. There's so many just wide open doors before me to preach the word of Jesus that I've just missed because of my own selfishness, because of my own pride, because I was afraid of what I'd look like, because I was afraid I'd look foolish, because I was afraid I'd stumble through it. I've just, and, and there's people that, They've just relegated to, I just, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I've tried 
and I've failed. I've missed too many opportunities. And we live under this guilt, thinking that God's upset with us. Maybe some of you guys, even last night, you missed an opportunity and you're living under this guilt and the shame like God's disappointed in you. Think about Peter and Jesus, John 21, right after, right after the epic failure of all human history, Peter denying Jesus three times. And yet what's Jesus' response? Peter, go feed my sheep. See, Jesus, I don't think he's, is upset with our failures as we are. Do you know that about Jesus? I don't think he's upset about your failures as you are. See, with Jesus, there's always a second chance. There's a lifetime of second chances. There's always a second chance. And if you've failed, then repent and then fall under the grace of Jesus and then get back up and do it again and do it again and do it again. But preach the word and preach the word with boldness. Because there's a world out there that needs to hear it. There's a world out there that's literally dying to hear the message of Jesus. And who will go and tell them? I've just been gripped again with this eternal perspective. I'm 31 years old. 31 years has gone by in a moment. In another moment... I'm going to be 60. In another moment, I'm going to be dead and I'm going to be face to face with Jesus. And my life is going to be taken into account. And I'm going to have to give account to Jesus. What did I do with my time here on earth? What did I do with these talents that he's given me? Did I live for myself? Did I hoard it to myself? Did I buy into this lie that is the American dream? Did I buy into the comfort and safety of this world? Did I spend my time and my energy building up this safety cushion? Or did I live extravagantly for the glory of Jesus? See, that's your choice every day. Are you living for yourself or are you living for Jesus? Every day you wake up, you put your feet on the ground, and that's your choice. Am I living for myself or am I going to live for the glory of Jesus? And let me tell you this, your life is not your own, but you've been bought at a price. And you've been created for the glory and the magnificence of Jesus. And in that, in losing yourself, you will find yourself. Because we live in an upside down kingdom. That those that lose themselves will find themselves. Those that lose their lives to Jesus will find the ultimate joy and the ultimate pleasure. And that's your choice every single day. Are you going to live for the magnificence of Jesus? Or are you going to live for yourself? Some of you guys are, this is, this is the burning passion of your life. You're, 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 you're stirred up and you're feeling like, I just, I need to give myself fully to Jesus. Maybe some of you, you're here and you've been, you've been caught up in the world. You've been caught up in the things of this world. And you're finding that they're just leaving you empty and you're wondering, is there something more? Yes, there's something more. And his name is Jesus. There's something more to live for. And there's others of you that you're living this way and you just need that encouragement to keep going. You're wondering, is it worth it? And I'll tell you, it's worth it. It's, oh, it's absolutely worth it. And keep going and don't give up. And if that's you, or if you're one of those that you're, that's your prayer, your prayer is Acts 4, God grant us boldness to speak your word. If that's you this morning, you're saying, God, give me boldness. Maybe there's that person at your work that you've just been, you've been waiting for that opportunity. You're waiting for that boldness.
If that's you and you just want that boldness, I want to pray for you this morning. I want to ask you to stand. We don't do this often. And before you stand, hear this. This isn't an obligation thing. This isn't a guilt thing. If God's not moving in your heart in this area right now, don't stand. That's not what I'm asking for. I'm not asking for a show. There's no show. You're not going to be judged if you don't stand. You're not going to impress anybody if you do. I just want to take this opportunity to, to respond to what Jesus is doing. This is just a moment of response. No show, no flash. You're not earning anything. This isn't a moment of salvation. I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about responding to what Jesus is doing. But if that's your prayer, God, grant me boldness to speak your word. I want you to stand and I want to, I want to pray for you. Jesus, I'm brought back to the early church and they prayed for boldness and God, you are faithful. You are faithful, God. You're always faithful. You're the faithful God whose promises never end. Your promises are yes and amen. Your promises are eternal. And we rest in your promises, God. And we pray, God, this morning for that boldness, just like the early church did. We pray for that boldness. Believing, Jesus, that you are God will be faithful to fulfill your word and that by your Holy Spirit you will fill your church with boldness. That you will fill the hearts of your believers here in this church with boldness. I believe God that this morning that your church will walk out of these doors with a greater zeal. That zeal for your house will consume us. That we will be like the early church and say we can't but help speak about this man Jesus. So God, grant us boldness. If that's your prayer, just receive it from God. It's not, about, it's not my prayer. It's, it's, the, it's the spirit of God resting. It's the spirit of God filling. It's the promises of God that are sure. So receive that this morning. Not from me, but from the Holy Spirit. Receive the boldness of God.